interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. So I'm open to some discussion now, to hearing what you've been thinking and trying to address those issues if I can. So the question is, <clears throat> in light of things I've said, what do I think about <clears throat> the historicity of like Adam and Eve? Well, again, um, literally in Genesis 2, there are two individual people, the first man and first woman. Okay? Not so in Genesis 1. So I've got to take both together because both are scripture and both are authoritative. So when when the man who by the way is not called adam he's called ha adam the human and the woman who is not called eve she's called um ha isha the woman right when the man first sees the woman he says a piece of hebrew poetry this is now at last bone of my bone flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man in that poem the word woman isha is meant to pun with the word man ish it's in Hebrew. Hebrew doesn't go back beyond 1000 BC. That is obviously a later construction. I can't take it literally that the man spoke in Hebrew if there was a first man. So the, the question is, it is literal. But what is that telling us about what we would, would, would understand if we were literally there at the beginning? I don't know. Because I'm not, I'm not going to try and ask that question. I'm going to ask, what is Genesis 2 trying to teach me? And I could have do a whole other lecture on that. Stuff that we haven't even heard of yet. And then you wouldn't even ask this question. Because it's so interesting in its, in its own right. I, I, okay, yeah, go ahead. Another one. Mm-hmm. Right. Question is, how do you distinguish in the Bible between what is meant to be metaphorical and what is meant to be historical? I would say that the actual question is, the way I would ask it is, how do I distinguish between what I should take as historical? Because they may intend something to be historical, and I'd say, no, it's not. I'm willing to say that, but I can't say that in advance. I've got to indwell the text, read it, get to know the text in its context before I have the 
guts to say anything like that. So I do not like to speak in theoretical ways about how you should read scripture. Let's go read some scripture together and see what we get from it. Then my reflections on the nature of scripture are going to be reflections on praxis. That's the way I approach it. Because as I was telling Ray here, um, that I started with the doctrine of inerrancy. I went to graduate school um, with a paper that I had written to get into graduate school, to Christian graduate school, defending the doctrine of inerrancy. In fact, my paper was better than anybody else's defense. I took Clark Pinnock's book that had just been written and I did a better job than he did. Okay? Then I got in and I started reading Bible. And the doctrine was of no use in studying the Bible. In fact, it was getting in the way. So it's kind of like you have a list of the perfect man or woman that you want to marry. All the criteria. Then you go and actually meet them. You throw the list away because this is the actual person now. The list may or may not be helpful. Now, after you got to know them and marry them, then come up with a new list. So my doctrine of scripture is my second list but it's based on the reality of actually interpreting the Bible. That's what I found. Yeah. You talked about um, scientists being kind of complex interpreters of theological reality. Is that accurate? Could be. Yes. Yeah, in, in the Christian theological values. So, how, as a Christian, do I relate to scientists who are definitely not that? The question is if my claim was that scientists ought to be members of the Christian community mediating their Christianity into their science, how do I, as a Christian in science, relate to scientists who are not Christians? That, that's no different than how do I, as a Christian, relate to people who are not Christians in any area. How do I relate to their science? To their science. Okay. Um, let me tell you, without answering the question directly, I'll just bypass it and tell you how I came to this understanding that the, the, the scientist has to mediate the tradition. That is, um, Jamie Smith of Calvin College, he's a philosopher and myself, led a seminar this past summer at Calvin College for 12 Christian professors in different disciplines to teach them how to read the Bible well. It was called Biblical Study Across the Disciplines. And it was competitive. About 50 people applied. We took 12 who had a project they were working on. For three weeks, we, um, we just embedded these people in biblical interpretation, the best biblical interpretation, pushing them, pushing them, reading close readings of the text, doing stuff like I did today, doing a lot more. At the end of the three weeks, each person had a presentation to do on how their indwelling scripture had affected what they were doing in their discipline. And they all talked about it that it had to do with the fact their identity was being shaped in new ways by the biblical tradition. So they, as narratively shaped people from scripture, could now start to see their discipline differently and interact with the ideas in the discipline differently. But it came through their indwelling the tradition rather than taking some ideas and linking them to other ideas, which is what we call integration of faith and learning, which everybody said actually doesn't make any sense. It's, it's just totally theoretical. But this was more exper- experiential. So I think you start to figure it out. Especially if in community with other Christians you can talk about this. How do Christians know how to live in the world? How to deal with the internet and to deal with you know, advertising and entertainment? You've you got to talk about this in, in church sometime. 
Well, talk about science too. Communally come to some wisdom on the subject. So really what you're saying is that science is lived in, at all levels at which it really applies to life. It is a lived thing. Yes, science is a lived thing, yeah. Even theoretical stuff is lived. I've never found a disjunction between theory and lived experience. Never. Great question. Yes. Right, right. So, how is the Bible really borrowing from the ancient cultures around versus being distinctive? And I think it's both at the same time. My analogy would be, if you have a good preacher who is really interacting with how the gospel impacts contemporary culture, they're going to cite contemporary culture a lot in challenging it. So, for example, we know that flood stories were Mesopotamian and predate the Bible by thousands of years. And the Bible does biblical... Um, Geography doesn't have much flooding at all. It's an extraneous tradition. But they interact with that. They assume all that. They use that and make very distinctive theological points about God, how God relates to people, the reason for the flood, and what God does after the flood to fix the problem. Very different from all the flood stories in Mesopotamia. But they all agree there was a flood. There was a, a Noah. He's called different things. Akrahasis, Zeusudra, and so forth. Utnapishtim in different traditions. Um, there's some almost verbatim borrowing from the Gilgamesh epic about the kind of wood and, the, and the, the dove and all that stuff. Almost verbatim borrowing in the Bible. In fact, the gopher wood of the Bible is a word cognate to an Akkadian word used in the Gilgamesh epic, not found anywhere else in the Bible. They're obviously borrowing it, but they're making a very different theological point about the flood. So they're both together. And they, we can talk about things to read if you want to read up on that after. I know there's one or two more just waiting, just thinking, getting their courage up. Yes. Right. Right. My my. my so I'm a glib comment to my brother over there about inerrancy, which I didn't mean to they put on of you at all, that inerrancy is the doctrine of the 18th century. Um, I want to distinguish very clearly the general doctrine of the inspiration and authority of Scripture from the specific form, formation of the, the inerrancy doctrine, because I actually believe the inspiration and authority of Scripture. But the doctrine of inerrancy was formulated, and there are books written on this, right, was formulated at Princeton Seminary in the 18th century, um, by those working on ethics and apologetics and natural philosophy, utilizing Thomas Reed's common sense epistemology, which was his response to Hume, as opposed to Kant's other response, that sort of epistemology fed into their natural theology, which they were developing, and that was the origin of the doctrine of inerrancy, as far as I understand it. It's a very particular formulation about truth and how it applies to the scripture, which... 
I don't buy necessarily. But I do believe in the, in the inspiration and authority of the Bible. One more. Sure. Yes. Like conditional covenant, unconditional covenant, more of a whosoever will may come and chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Can you say a little bit about that aspect of scripture that leaves a lot of things in a kind of tension that strikes me at least that it's very, very authentic to the way we actually experience Yeah, so the question is that Scripture seems to leave a lot of things unresolved. There's tensions within the Bible with different points of view. And how do I address those questions? Well, the first, the first thing to say is that's what makes teaching the Bible so interesting. So I, I tell my students that if you think you believe everything in the Bible, you haven't read it yet. <laughs> so let's actually read together and see what it says. And I'm not going to make... And I say, I say two things about... This, this is what I've learned from reading the Bible, right? On the one hand, I want you to be very clear about what it says. Don't read your ideas into it. I mean, that's hard. We all read subjectively. But be very clear, this is what it says. And then, be clear about what you think of it. Don't, I'm not telling you have to agree with it. It may take you years to come to agree with something. You're, you may have a gut reaction against something. Don't suppress it and say the Bible just means what I think. Accept that it may say something very different. And then let's deal with that. So I think it's just interesting that this happens in the Bible. The Bible comes through multiple points of view. Why do we have four Gospels, all different, with different historical chronologies of events? You know, Mark, uh, what is his name, Harold Linzel in the Battle for the Bible, an inerrantist, figured out that Peter had to deny Jesus six times to make the accounts harmonize. That's the kind of thing that inerrancy gets in the way of the Bible. It doesn't, doesn't live with the complexity of the different points of view. Now, when you get to the fact that within the Old Testament, both within the Old Testament and between the Testaments, you actually have contradictory points of view on all, all kinds of matters, that's much more interesting. What's going on there? Um, many laws of the Old Testament are not God's ideal. They are meant to get people moving towards the ideal. You know, so one of the, the teaching things I use is Jesus' teaching on divorce. The Pharisees come to him and say, well, the law of Moses says a man can divorce a woman for any reason. Um, and he says, well, back in the beginning it wasn't that way. Yeah. After, after Adam had said the poem about Eve, it says what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. So that's two points of view in the Bible. And Jesus gives a third. So, you can't divorce anybody except for adultery. Ooh, three points of view. Then the disciples object. He says, well, this teaching may be too hard. It's not for everybody. Is that four points of view? So we start with that one and then, then go to other places where you find this kind of tension. And as I, as I love to say, I'm not making this up. It really is in the Bible. So let's live with it for a while and try to come up with a, a hermeneutic that takes the character of the Bible seriously the way it is. Because God inspired it that way. 